singing about power, before we get into the text we're in this morning, you know, we live in a world and a time, of course we always have, maybe sometimes more than others or more acutely than others, that values power or energy, uh, you know, powers, in science, powers the ability to get work done, and energy's kind of along that same line, so, uh, you know, the energy crisis, oil goes over 140 a barrel, and and we're searching all over the world for new oil reserves. We're looking for coal reserves and ways to, to gather and acquire and burn and use energy more efficiently or more, uh, <clears throat> more efficiently, more, uh, less costly, I guess I should say. Uh, we value political power. We've just come through an election. And we value, on one hand, the ability to transform culture or society or affect the way we live and interact with each other and others or... We value mechanical power, you know, if we're thinking about the ability to uh, build roadways and bridges, put up houses and structures that we use. Uh, We value the energy or the power of biology and chemistry when we're thinking about medicines that help us get better or live better. Uh, We measure power and energy, uh, horsepower, foot-pounds, voltage, BTUs, uh, power or energy, it's an important component of everybody's lives, certainly. Now, <clears throat> we have power, too. Each one of us here has power, probably on a fairly limited uh, basis. But physically, we have power. Uh, every one of us has a body that has the power to do certain amounts of work in certain given time periods, perhaps. Um, we have a kind of power in our minds, thoughts we can conceive, ideas we can conceive and then act upon. Or if we think of power and energy and the ability to influence others, all of us have personally some kind of power, some kind of energy to achieve work as well. Most of us probably feel like the power or the energy we have or can utilize, though, is pretty limited. Uh, we're not governors. We're not presidents and kings. We're not Arnold Schwarzeneggers, you know, the Terminator kind of physical strength, etc. But the truth is, if you're Christian... And if you know the scriptures, you have a power and an energy that exceeds anything else literally in the, in the world or in the universe. And as we go through 1 Thessalonians 2 this morning, you see if you agree with me or not. And as we get there, by the way, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, your bulletin says through verse 16, we're only going to be in that one verse this morning. <clears throat> Once in a while... A topic comes up in a section that I just think is important enough that we we park there, and that's what we'll do this morning. Um, You remember in 1 Thessalonians, we're reading an epistle Paul wrote after he and Silas and Timothy had worked their way up what's modern-day Greece, and they'd gone through that city called Philippi, and they'd been kind of beat up and abused, headed down the road to Thessalonica, and the same thing had started again. Only while they were there, church started. Paul leaves because of the persecution, and he writes back to see how they're doing and to encourage them. And in chapter 2, up to this point, Paul's talked about the kind of motivation or heart he has towards those in Thessalonica. Because they bugged out, some people were saying, look, don't listen to this guy, he really doesn't care, because if he did, he'd be here, etc., etc. So Paul had written back and said, no, we have the attitude towards you like a mother would, that kind of maternal care, or like a father would, paternal care. And that leads up to the verse we're in this morning. He says, Excuse me, I am phlegmy this morning. You're going to hear me coughing throughout. Sorry. It says at verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So just listen to that verse again. You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Um, Paul goes into this city. And remember, Judaism was known in the Roman Empire, but not Christianity when he gets there. So this Jewish guy comes into Thessalonica and talks about a dead Jewish guy that for these guys would be kind of like, who knows and who cares, and says the words he's sharing with these people are God's words directly, and they should believe him and trust in, in this Jewish Messiah who had died and risen from the grave. Now, I mean, if you were them, why would you believe Paul? This would be totally out of context for your world. And think of it too, kind of like our world today. You know, there's lots of voices that say they speak for God or they they talk about ultimate truth. So we've got scientists that will tell you how the world started maybe and how we got here. That's That's a voice that claims to speak truth. Or we've got all kinds of religious groups, not only in the States but around the world, that all claim to speak for God. Paul's day was no different. So remember, he goes into a Roman colony, and there were um, Roman and Greek uh, temples all over the place to various uh, small gods, deities. And remember, every one of them uh, proposed to speak for the God that they represented. And into this mix, Paul comes, this short Jewish guy, we assume, talking about a Jewish Messiah, and says that his words are not just from a small god, G, small g god, but from the God of gods, and that they should listen to what he has to say. And so the question for me, or for them, I'm sure, was why should we listen to this guy? Why should we believe that his words about this Jesus, Jewish person, why should we believe that his words are from God, and what we've believed all along isn't? What makes his words of any value? Paul says, I've got the real deal. Here it is. Now, on one level... As a Jew, remember, Paul comes into this mix already believing the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but to the Jews of Paul's days, that was their Bible, wasn't it? That's all they had, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So for Paul, here was a guy individually who already valued God's Word because the Jews understood that the Old Testament was literally God's Word. And so they reverenced it. And remember, they'd keep the Torah, the scrolls of the Law, in, a, in a, sacred, a sacred place in the back of the, the uh, temple and also in the uh, synagogues, they valued it because they understood it was God's word. So if you read the Old Testament as Paul did and as the other Jews of his day did, they knew that the prophets had said repeatedly things like, thus says the Lord, God says this. So that when a prophet spoke, he said, it's not my words, these aren't my opinions, but God is speaking through me or God is speaking through the words I'm recording. Thus says the Lord. These aren't my words. These are God's word. So Paul had grown up reverencing the Old Testament as God's word. Well, he brings that same concept now into what we call the New Testament, which included, of course, the very words he spoke and then the epistles he wrote. So first, Paul believed that his words were from God. He believed that the words that he wrote in his epistles were God's word. And later, Peter 
becomes Paul's amen corner in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, when Peter says about our beloved brother Paul that in his letters he speaks of some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter looks at Paul's writings and Paul's words and says, Paul's words are just like the rest of the scriptures. And for the Jew, typically to call the Bible the writings or the scriptures, that was the way they would have identified them. So he says of Paul's words and writings, the rest of the scriptures. Peter says Paul's words are from God as well. If you read your New Testament, get outside the Gospels, if you look through Acts through Revelation, you see that this phrase, the Word of God is used 33 times. The word of, so it'll say in Acts, the Word of God spread. Um, the Word of God increased. Well, this is what the people, the apostles, the disciples, and their early followers were saying. When it says the Word of God, it's not that Jesus was physically there again speaking. It's that His followers were speaking. So that included Paul here, or it included Stephen, or Peter, or the other apostles and disciples. So the Word of God throughout the New Testament is used just as it had been in the Old Testament. So Paul comes in saying, my words, what I shared with you, are like the words that we as Jews have read in the Old Testament. They aren't just my words, they weren't just Isaiah's words, those were God words, and you should believe them. Now, they still would have had the question, and we would have the question today, how do you know that those words were God's words? Paul makes a claim, and that's fine. And he seems sincere and devout, and that may be fine too. And maybe there's facts we can check up on. But apart from that, how do we know what Paul said were God's words? What made the Thessalonians believe what he said was true? At verse 13 again, uh, these phrases uh, kind of pop out to me. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. We started talking about work and power and energy. Well, Paul says the difference between God's word and other words, other messages that someone says are from God, other opinions, your opinions or my opinions. Paul says here is that God's word performs God's work. That God's word is inherently powerful. It has an energy or a power that other people's words and opinions lack. God's word, Paul says, is uniquely powerful. So um, my New American Standard reads this this way, the word of God which performs its work in you. Uh, The NIV actually reads to me a little better here. It says the word of God which is at work in you. And the key term here, uh, work, is in Greek, energetai. So you can imagine what English work we get from that, energy. Uh, So we could say the word of God which energizes you who believe or the word of God which is working in you who believe. Paul says God's word, the words he had shared, they are energetic. They have this inherent power that other people's opinions and words lack. God's word, Paul says, has power to achieve God's will. If you look at this in either testament, you see the same thing. This claim that God's word recorded in the Bible, Old and New Testament, has this value, this ability to perform work, this ability to transform lives that other things simply don't have. So, for instance, in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, 
Isaiah, God through Isaiah, compares his word to rain or snow to moisture. And the moisture falls from the clouds of heaven and it lands on the earth. And of course, in its cycle, it'll end up evaporating and returning back to heaven to the clouds again. Well, Isaiah says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, that water accomplishes something. It has energy. It performs work. Isaiah says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God says of his word, when he speaks, his words have a power nothing else on earth has. And when God speaks, his words accomplish whatever it is he sent them for. So God's word has power. You know, you and I can say tons of things. In our words, someone might say, uh, biblically, they fall to the ground. His words fell to the ground. You know what that means? They didn't do anything. They didn't go anywhere. But God says when he speaks, his words have an energy and a power that nothing else has. And his words accomplish his work. You can go to the New Testament in Hebrews 4 verse 12. I was looking at the directory. This was someone's verse. Matt, I don't know if it was yours. It was someone, sorry, in the directory. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God uh, is living. It's zoe. It has our, our word zoo or zoological means life. It has life, but it's also active. The term active here is from the same Greek root we've got. It's energy. So in Hebrews 4, it says God's word is energetic. God's word has inherent energy or power. It's active and alive. It has energy. It has power. The Thessalonians experienced this power, God's power through Paul's words, which weren't really Paul's words, he says, but were really God's words in at least three ways I want to look at this morning. And the first is that God's word brought about God's work in the way of salvation for the Thessalonians. Salvation was the first work that Paul's words accomplished. You know, if you think about work and energy in general, um, we, have, we have the ability, humans on the earth today, have the ability to do all kinds of things, uh, really amazing things. So from, from very simple things that, are, that require very little work or energy or power to very, very huge things, so that if you look at the high-rise buildings that are going up around the world today, it's really remarkable. And think about how much work or power it requires to raise one of those uh, kilometer-high structures. It's unbelievable, the amount of man-hours and, and uh, all the work that goes into that. But you know what humans still can't do? Humans, no matter how much power you have, no matter how much energy you have, you and I can't create life. You can't give life to someone who's died. And you and I can't give spiritual life to someone who's separated from God. But God's word can. With all the power in the universe we have today, you and I can't restore life, we can't give life, and we can't make someone else come alive spiritually. But God's word can and does. And that's what happened to the Thessalonians. When the Thessalonians heard the news, the gospel, God's word about his son, the Lord Jesus, who he was, what he did, his resurrection, and their need for him, they believed. 
And when they believe, they experience that new birth, that thing that nothing and no one else can do. And you know, as Christians, I don't know what this looks like for all of us. Everyone's experience is a little differently. But we knew once we came to Christ that something was different than it was before. Um, I was raised in a religious household. I thank God for that. But as I grew up as a young man, I was not a Christian. I, I knew the truth about who Jesus was and what he'd done, but it wasn't personal. When I believed, I knew something was different. I knew I wasn't the same person I'd been before. And the scriptures started making sense in a way they hadn't before. I knew that when I trusted Christ, something had happened. And that something was there was spiritual life. I'd been dead and now I was alive. Well, the Thessalonians had that same sense. We were dead and now we're alive. And it's because of the message, Paul's words about Jesus. That first work of Paul's words slash God's words was that people became spiritually alive. That can't happen through any other route. God's word accomplished his work, which initially for them was salvation. Um, This is no small thing. And you know, because we're mortal and life here, as we know it on the earth, ends, you know, the most important thing for anyone to know is what happens when I die. If we're immortal, as the scripture teaches, what happens after after I die? If time is this limited sphere we're in now, what happens in eternity where we're going? Well, the single biggest thing is, am I connected to Christ? Am I going to be with Him forever or not? There's no more important question in all of of life or the world for us. Paul says, God's word about Christ brings salvation. Now, this is not simplistic, but listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and then Romans. A little later, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, and they're kind of neighbors of the Thessalonians. They're down the the, uh, peninsula there a little bit. And when Paul went to Corinth and wrote back to them, he said this, 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross, which is simply the gospel, who is Jesus, what did he do, what's your need? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message about Christ, God's word about his son, Paul says, is the power of God. A little later in chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, again, this is the gospel, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, we didn't preach anything else. It's all we wanted to say to you. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And what does that mean to you? The gospel, the word of the cross. Paul says it's the power of God to salvation. Same thing in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. That's the deal. God's word, the gospel accomplished in the Thessalonians, salvation or redemption. And they knew it. When they trusted, they knew they were, there was something different in their life than had been before. They knew when they believed that message about Jesus this Galilean who'd been crucified and rose from the dead, that they were something now they hadn't been before, that they were reconciled to God, that they were spiritually alive. The greatest power on earth cannot bring spiritual life, but the gospel does. God's word, producing God's work or achieving God's work, first for the Thessalonians and in us as well, is salvation or deliverance, reconciliation. That's the most important thing. If nothing else happened, we'd be good 
If we died at that moment, we'd be good to go. It did a second thing too, though, and we typically call this sanctification. Paul uses this word later in Thessalonians. Um, I'm not against the term or the thought of sanctification, which just means holy, and these tend to be religious terms, and so they carry negative nuance in our culture. So if you think of, uh, it just means you're set apart for special things. It means you're special, if you think of it that way. To be holy or sanctified means you're special in a good sense, not in a bad sense. Um, I find I, I prefer the term freedom as I think about this, and you can try them both on and see what works for you. But God's word in the Thessalonians brought about what Paul calls sanctification, what I prefer to call freedom. It changed their life in a way that freed them from things that didn't help them and allowed them to experience more of life, more positives, more upsides. In Psalm 119, verse 160, David said, The sum of your words is truth. That is, if you look at God's word in general, if you add it all up or look at it from any different angle, God's word is truth. And when Jesus prays for his disciples and then people like you and me who would believe in him from his first disciples, Jesus said to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Give them freedom. You'll do that through your word, which is true. Or John 8, 31 and 32, some of my favorite verses If you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Paul says God's word, accomplishing God's work, brings freedom. And that's what the Thessalonians had found. So, for instance, for them, God's word freed them from idolatry. Um, We looked at our missionary this morning, Gopal Biswakarma in Nepal, You know, we support Gospel for Asia missionaries in the 1040 window. Um, Literally, there are still people there today who live like the Thessalonians did before the Gospel came. That is, they they worship certain gods at certain shrines and temples. They they perform uh, blood rituals to gain the favor. They, They bring sacrifices to these gods and demigods hoping for favor. And they live in a world of spiritual darkness. And when the gospel comes there and these people hear about Christ and believe, their world, they gain freedom. Well, the Thessalonians gained freedom from pursuing life through these idols, idols that couldn't help them, which this brings up, which the epistle brings up. Also, it freed them from sexual immorality. In our culture, if you say you're freed from sexual immorality, that might sound like a negative because we revel in sex as a concept and a practice. Um, You know, if you look at statistics and studies, though, uh, the people who, when they take surveys, rate uh, sexual happiness the highest, do you know who they are? They're, They're married people having sex with their spouses. Those are the happiest people in this category. The truth is... Sex, like many other things, drugs, um, probably a number of things we could think about, they carry a temporary pleasure that feels good and it's diverting. And if we're not happy, that that gives us a certain kind of solace for a while. But, you know, the fact is there's then this negative fallout that follows that. So if I'm freed from sexual immorality and um, we don't have anything on the Thessalonians or the old ancient Roman world on this, Because like our culture, their culture was immersed in sexuality. And it was a part of all the ritual um, 
that, that attended the temples and the shrines of their day. So they were freed from this. So whether you think of physical diseases or confusion or unhappiness, all the things that go along with sex outside of God's plan in marriage, they were freed from that because of the truth that Paul preached to them. And this comes up again later in the epistle. They were also freed from fear of death because this comes up later in chapter 4. They were afraid, what happens when we die? And what happened to my loved one who died? What, what about them? Well, Paul tells them what happened to their loved ones who died in new Christ. So they're freed from fear as well. So to the Thessalonians, God's word affected through God's power, this transformation, this holiness, this sanctification, this freedom in which they were freed from things that were, made life hard for them. They were freed to more of life not less of life, because of the truth of God's Word. Uh, All of us face areas in life in which we need to know what God has said about a thing. If I face temptation, if I face an area of sin in my life that seems constant, hard for me to get over, Psalm 119, uh, verse 11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. If I want freedom from a particular temptation or area of sin... David said that if I treasure God's word in my heart, it has this redemptive value that lets me get past or get over or avoid these areas of temptation and sin. Or Proverbs 2, 6 through over 16 or so. This is a constant theme throughout Proverbs. But Solomon wrote there, The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Then he says, What do you get if you get God's wisdom and knowledge? You get wisdom, discernment, discretion, understanding, You're delivered from the way of evil. You're saved from all this downside. You get all this upside. That comes from knowing what God has said about something. So God's word performs God's work. And in the Thessalonians, that meant freedom. Freedom from numerous things. For you and I, it should mean the same thing. Christians should be the freest people on earth because we know what God has said and because the truth of God's word has brought freedom into our lives. The last one is this, um, God's word did two things related to the future for them. It warned them about what was going to come so that they were prepared for it when it happened. And it also gave them a hope beyond what they could otherwise see or know. So for instance, Paul said in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, persecution came to you and that should be no surprise because we told you it was coming. We told you that if you're a follower of Christ in a world that rejects him, you're going to be treated the way he was. He was rejected, you'll be rejected. Well, for this group of believers, they knew it was coming, they'd been warned. So they'd been able to adjust their thinking or their attitudes because God's word had said, this is what's going to happen to you. So God's word had this power, this energy to transform their opinion about the future. It's not always going to be... uh, blue skies and green lights. Paul told us we're going to be persecuted as Christ followers. So we get ourselves mentally prepared for that. We're spared agony. By the way, you know, today too, um, in the land of green lights and blue skies, we think God's promised that it's always going to be good. And, you know, that's just not biblical. No way, no how. Uh, Jesus said, if this world rejects me, they'll reject you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Now, we have been blessedly free from lots of persecution in the United States because of our history and the people that founded this country. But you try telling Christians today in China that there's no persecution. 
or parts of North and Northeast Africa. It's laughable because reality's in their face. <clears throat> they know that to name Christ is to get persecution. These guys knew the same thing. So they were warned. They knew it was coming. For us, hard times come and we think, what happened, Lord? What did I do wrong? Sometimes we get persecution because we're doing things right. Sometimes persecution comes because we're doing exactly what God wanted us to do the way He wanted us to do it. So we're warned. We know what's coming. But the other thing is, God's Word brought them hope. So when they'd been afraid of what would happen to them or what had happened to their relatives, their friends who had died, Paul says, hey, this is the deal. You may, you may die like your friends or relatives. But if you do, you're going to be with the Lord. And when Christ returns, you'll come with Him and get your new body. And if you live until that happens, you're going to join your loved ones with Christ in the air and you'll always be with Him. So as persecution comes on, as death comes in their community, later on as martyrdom comes, they had a hope for the future because they knew what God had said, that God wins, Christ returns, He makes things right, and He brings His followers with them or His followers on the earth at the time meet Him and they're always with Him. So the Scriptures, God's words, had the power to affect change on the way they viewed the future. They were warned on one hand about what was coming, so they were armed, if you will, forearmed. But they also had a hope that they couldn't have had otherwise. They had a hope because they knew who they belonged to. They knew where they were going. If I told you today in this market that I absolutely knew the future of the stock market and that your stocks or your mutual funds, they were going to plummet, but don't worry... They're going to come back and you'll, you'll make more money than you ever thought possible. If you knew that I knew the future and I told you that, when your stocks plummeted, what would your attitude be? You'd be like, well, that's okay because I know where they're going. I know it looks like I've lost everything, but I really haven't. I know they're coming back. Well, it's sort of that with the words Paul, Paul shared with the Thessalonians here was that it's going to be hard, persecution, but it's okay in the end because Christ wins and He'll make everything right. The other thing about the future, you know, if you read Isaiah, especially in the Old Testament, actually you go to Deuteronomy, it says the same thing. God says that if you want to know if someone speaks for Him, if they tell you a future event and it doesn't happen, they don't speak for God. God says in Isaiah repeatedly that only God can accurately tell you the future. Only God can accurately tell you the future. So if someone tells you something's going to happen in the future and it doesn't, or it doesn't happen the way they said, you know they don't speak for God. But God said, as the one who knows the end from the beginning, that He tells us what happens before it happens, and that does two things. It validates for us again, we know who we're trusting, we know His words are true, and it tells us what's to come so we know how to think about it. God's the only one who can tell the future. So, God's Word performs God's work, and He does it, by the way, by God's Spirit. Um, this isn't magic to say God's Word performs His work. These are not incantations that we say over someone or some situation or something. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, sometimes uh, Christians can be caught up in a mentality in which we become God and we speak words that God has said and it's as if it's a magical incantation. And that's not the way this works. If spiritual work gets done, it's because the Holy Spirit is at work. And the Holy Spirit routinely is using God's Word to accomplish His work. So we're not talking magical thinking here. We're not saying that we simply speak and we create worlds or something like that. We say God the Holy Spirit's at work. He's at work in and through us. And generally, the way He uses us is through the truth of His Word. So if this is true, and it was true for the Thessalonians, and I would hold that it's true for us today, what should that mean about the way we live life and communicate with others? And just a few thoughts, you'll have your own. When you're talking to someone else about Christ, or anything that that touches on spiritual issues, you should be sharing with them what the Scripture says. And I don't mean, uh, qualify this again, I don't mean that you're uh, just spewing verses. You know, when you read the Gospels, when Jesus interacts with people, when he speaks, he addresses specifically where that person is at. So when I say this, it's in the context of I'm listening to someone else. Where are they really at? What's their need? What's their issue? If I'm talking to people along this line, I'm generally quietly praying, Lord, what is it that you want me to share? What do they need to hear? What's the point for this person? What aspect of your word is true or would be helpful? But when you and I talk to others about spiritual matters, tell them what the Bible says, what God's word on the subject is. So someone may ask you, what do you think about abortion? Or what do you think, are there many ways to heaven? Or whatever. Um, I don't give them my opinion. I try and say something like this. Well, the scripture says this. Because I have opinions like everyone else has opinions. Of what value are those? My opinion's no, no more powerful, no more energetic than theirs. But if I can say God's word says this, God says he'll use the truth of his word to save others, to transform others, and to give others hope and warning. So in those conversations, I don't want to say, this is what I think. I want to say nicely and naturally, well, the scriptures say this. And typically what I also like to do is ask them the question, so if someone says, do you believe there's many ways to heaven? I say, well, Jesus said in John 14 that he's the only way to the Father. And I just can't get around that. What do you do with that? God's word says this. What do you make of that? And of course, you can go on from there. But the thing is, it's not your opinion or my opinion that's helpful. It's what has God said about an issue. So in those conversations we're having with other people, you can say naturally, well, God says this about this, or Romans 1 says this, or... Psalm 139 says this, whatever the issue might be. You know, to do that, if you're going to share God's word with others, what does that imply? You have to know God's word yourself. So I'm back on my hobby horse. So if you leave and you don't hear anything else, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Um, I've embarrassed groups in the past when I say, how many here read their Bible every day? I'm not going to embarrass this group now. But in your mind, raise your hand if you don't read your Bible every day. I'm talking to you. Read your Bible every day. If God's Word is what transforms your life and mine, 
if it brings us freedom, if it warns us and gives us hope, why aren't we reading it? Imagine this. If I told you there's a million dollars in your bed. By the way, did you guys see this story on the internet? A guy's remodeling a bathroom. I love this. Guy's remodeling a bathroom. 80 plus year old house. And the remodeler's opening up a wall. And what does he find? He finds boxes with money from the Great Depression. He finds over $180,000 in cash. Well, it's not his house. Sorry, this has nothing to do with the rest of the teaching, but it sort of connects. Um, It's his friend's house that he's remodeling for her. So he's an honest guy. He tells her, hey, I found all this money. They take pictures, grinning, with all this this 80-year-old cash laid out on the table. And, uh, of course, you know what happens after this? Uh, she offers him 10% of what's in her house. He wants 40 It makes the news. The heirs of the estate hear of it. They say, that's our father's money. And you owe that to us. She claims 60000 is stolen. She goes to Hawaii on a $16,000 trip, etc., etc., etc. But the point is... Once someone knows the money is there, they're all about the money. And just translate this just a little bit. Money is nothing more than power, right? Because the money, you could start a fire with it. It's just paper. But it represents something. It represents wealth. It represents power. So if that gal had known there was money in that wall, and let's say that for whatever reason she could only take so much out every day, you know where she'd be every day? She'd be in that wall. And if you and I had a safe and we, we had a million bucks in there and we knew we could go to that safe every day and draw out some money, you know what we'd be doing every day? We'd be in that safe every day. Before our morning coffee, before breakfast, we'd be at that loot. <laughs> Guys, that's the thing. You've got, we've got, between the pages of the covers of that Bible, you've got the wealth of the universe. You've got more power and more energy than the $180,000 in the bathroom wall or than the million dollars in the vault. You've got power that money cannot buy between the covers of your Bible. This just makes all the sense in the world to me that we ought to be reading our Bible. If it saves me, if it frees me, if it gives me warning and hope, why aren't I reading it? It's power, it's energy to transform my life. We need to be reading it. We have the power, literally, of life over death. We have the power in our own lives and the lives of others to see real freedom and we have the power to give warnings and future hope in the truth of the scriptures. God's power to save us, free us, heal us, warn us. It's between the pages of our Bible. So if you think about this, take the power of the sun or take the magnetic power of the universe or the gravitational forces or dark matter or a lightning bolt or anything you can think of, the power you've got between the pages of your Bible, it's of greater power than all those combined because it can bring life out of death and it can set captives free and it can give the hopeless hope. No power on earth can do that and that's what we've got in the pages of our Bible and that's why the Thessalonians believed. That's why their lives were transformed. And it should be the same thing for us today. 
And the truth is we've got the million dollars in the wall and for many of us, we walk by it every day and we don't take that money out that day. We don't make available God's power to us to accomplish God's work in us and through us that day simply because we're not going to the source of power. Again, this is not magic. God's Holy Spirit uses the truth of His Word to change us and then to use us to change others. And it's in the truth of the Scriptures. And that's where we ought to be. If we want to be people of power, the power is there. It's in God's Word. If you want to be a person of influence and power, read your Bible. You have greater power, greater energy to accomplish good in this earth and to be rewarded in heaven when you see Christ just from immersing yourself in the truth of the Word than you have in any other way in this earth and in this time God gives you in the world. So on one hand, we may look at ourselves in the mirror, look at each other and say, you're pretty small, pretty insignificant. You know, but scientists found in 1940 that you could take a little bit of matter, the right kind of matter, and you could make a huge explosion. You could take a few molecules... You could take a little bit of plutonium and a little bit of plutonium had immense, incredible, unbelievable power. Well, that's the same thing here. Unimportant people otherwise, we can take the power, if you will, of the universe, of the living God used by the Spirit of God in the truth of the Scriptures to see our own lives transform and also to see transformation in the lives of others. The Thessalonians did it in their day and we're certainly called to do the same thing today. Let's pray. Father, we have the wealth of the world in our relationship with you through Christ. Lord, we have the power of the universe in the power of your word. The atom bomb, the nuclear bomb, Lord, dynamite, none of those things hold a candle to the power you've given us in the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would, you would open our eyes to perceive the immense wealth, the immense energy, the immense power you've entrusted to us in the truth of your word and I pray that you would make us people of your word father people who think your thoughts after you people who pray your word that is your will to be done people who meditate on the truth of your word day and night as David did people who share the truth of your word with those around us so that they can find freedom and life in Christ as we have God we ask that you continue to be God and you help us to be your people by knowing your word, living it, and sharing it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.